Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 244 of the Leading Learning Podcast, in which we talk with Diane Elkins, co-founder of Artisan eLearning, a custom eLearning development shop, and eLearning Uncovered, a company specializing in training services, books, and resources for eLearning development. We've had the pleasure of knowing Diane and her work for a number of years. Salisa, what do you and she talk about? We talk e-learning and in particular rapid e-learning development as Diane has lots of experience in self-paced online learning from both a do-it-for-you and a help-you-do-it perspective. We get into some common mistakes with e-learning that she's seen in the last 16 years or so. And then on the flip side, we talk about what tends to lead to successful e-learning design and development. We also touch on learner motivation and engagement in the context of e-learning, as well as micro-learning. And in fact, we have a how to design a micro-lesson flowchart template from Diane that we'll be sure to make available in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 244. And because we recorded at the end of April 2020, COVID-19 crops up when I ask her for her view about what's on the horizon for e-learning. And she makes the wonderful point that at this moment, some instructional designers have been deemed essential workers. And wouldn't that be wonderful to continue? A view that sees learning design and development as important, essential work. I think that's really exciting for those of us who care about good, effective learning experiences. I do love that point about instructional designers, and this is just a really useful episode overall. So what reflection questions do you have to offer to listeners? Well, I have two to suggest. First, when we talk about learner engagement, Diane repeats some advice that she got about letting go of control. Are there places in the products and services your learning business offers where a desire for control is standing between you and effective design? And second, Look at your production values with an eye to what's truly helpful for learners versus what's flashy. Do you need to rethink your production values? Well, with that, let's move on to the conversation with Diane Elkins. Hello and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele, and today I'm talking with Diane Elkins. Diane co-founded Artisan eLearning, a custom eLearning development company, and eLearning Uncovered, a company specializing in training services, books, and resources for eLearning development using the major rapid eLearning authoring tools. 
Diane frequently speaks at events. Um, in fact, she led a session at Learning Technology Design 2019, and she's co-author of E-Learning Fundamentals, A Practical Guide, and the E-Learning Uncovered Book Series. Diane, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to start by asking, what else would you like to highlight for listeners about your work or your interests as backdrop for our conversation? Sure. Um, I When I started my business 16 years ago, 16, I think, my business partner and I mapped out our vision on a whiteboard in my on my patio. And uh, what we decided back then was that we would either do it for you or help you do it yourself. And so that's why we have the two different brands. And it's it's something that I really believe strongly in. Back 16 years ago, nobody was teaching people how to do e-learning. It was like a secret science, the man behind the curtain. <laughs> and um, we know there are folks who want to be able to develop this capacity internally. They want to be able to write a great storyboard. They want to be able to design great slides. They want to build it in their authoring tool. And then there's other folks who say, no, I have a different expertise. I want to be an expert in my content. I want somebody else to make sure that it's a good course. And so that's where the artisan e-learning side comes, where we can take um, a subject matter experts um, expertise and turn it into something that's helpful. Because somebody who knows what they're talking about isn't always the best choice to create content about (laughs) it. And so we're the bridge between that subject matter expert and what they know versus the learner and what they need on some random Tuesday in November. Mm. So that's what we do. We either do it for you or we help you figure out how to do it yourself. Well, that's great. And I like that you have both models in place. Um, One of the things I mentioned in the intro is that you um, really are focused on on e-learning and and in particular, I think even rapid e-learning development. And so maybe you could start by defining those terms, e-learning and rapid e-learning development, because again, I think there can be some uh, kind of nuance around them, um, depending on who you talk to. And then talk a little bit about what attracted you to that kind of particular niche in the learning field. Sure. So uh, e-learning can have a very broad definition. If you look at it very literally, it's anything you learn electronically. So if I go to Wikipedia and read a definition, I've learned something that's e-learning. But I don't think most practitioners would call that e-learning. So the the definition I tend to use is more narrow, where it's a um, a, a purposeful um, set of content delivered electronically for the purposes of, of training somebody on a specific skill. Now, my particular niche of the world is the self-paced model. So when I personally throw around the word e-learning, I'm usually referring to self-paced e-learning as opposed to uh, a podcast like this, which is technically e-learning, um, or a webinar or something instructor-led that's virtual. So I tend to live more in the self-paced world, where it's a course that stands alone that somebody can take any time they want. And then rapid e-learning is an interesting phrase because in a way it's a misnomer. There's nothing rapid about (laughs) e-learning development. Um, But it it harks back from the days when uh, coding was a very common solution, where if you wanted e-learning, you had to write code. And so the rapid e-learning development tools are those that uh, what I like to call us normal people can use, um, where you don't have to be a coder. So tools like um, Storyline or Captivate or Rise are um, those tools. So is it rapid? No. Um, You know, a typical instructor-led training course, industry averages say that it's about 40 hours of effort to create one hour of seat time for instructor-led, whereas that number for e-learning can be 
on a low end double the time to quadruple the time very easily. Uh, so it's it's not rapid, but it's much more rapid if you have a tool like Storyline or Captivate or Rise because you're not programming. And so that's really what rapid um, e-learning means in this context. Well, thanks for those uh, definitions. And then, I mean, was there something in particular that kind of uh, attracted you to, to that particular type of learning, this, uh, you know, online, primarily self-paced um, kind of WYSIWYG tools? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's really been a marriage of um, of everything I've ever studied in my life. You know, when I when I was growing up, I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it, it turned out it turns out that it's because it hadn't been invented yet. Mm. <laughs> so um, in school, I, my original plan was to go into advertising, and I studied English, marketing, and graphic design. And I really was drawn back then to the tools. I started using Illustrator in 1992. I still remember the day. I drew concentric circles on the computer. <laughs> like I was so excited that I didn't have to use a compass anymore to draw concentric circles. So I've always been drawn to tools, Photoshop, Illustrator, etc. And I wanted to go into advertising. And I did that for a while and decided, wow, with all the stress and pressure, I've just made junk mail. <laughs> uh, so and I found training by accident on the side. Um, that's a whole different story we can get into another day. But then when and, and so I switched to training and I did a lot of stand up training. And then when e-learning started becoming really popular around 2000, I'm like, oh, wait, 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 what is this? This is a marriage of all of those things. It lets me um, do the training, which I love, which has, in my opinion, just such I don't have anything against advertising. Don't get me wrong. Um, I buy products. I need ads. I look at your catalogs. So, you know, I don't have an issue against advertising. But I just, I I feel much more drawn as a person to the training field where I'm helping people do their jobs better. Mm. Whether their job is a paid employee, a volunteer, a mother of a, of a premature baby, whatever your job is, when people know what to do, everybody wins. Mm. When people don't know what to do, people lose. And so I, I have that strong draw to the training industry for that reason. But now I still get to be creative and the graphic design and the software and the writing. And it's the marriage of everything I've ever loved in my life and everything I've studied in my life. And I made the jump in 2000 and have not looked back since. Mm. Well, great. Well, thanks for sharing that background and that story there. Um, because you have been involved in, in e-learning for, for so long at this point, I'm sure that you've had a lot of um, uh, opportunities to see um, mistakes and missteps that people tend to make with e-learning design and development. So tell us a little bit, what what tend to be those common mistakes that, that people make? Sure. I think, let me look at it from two perspectives. One is from a more strategic level and one from a more tactical level. From a more strategic level, I think it is very common for folks new to e-learning to um, not recognize how long it takes to put a project together. Every now and then I'll get a phone call from a potential client saying, oh yeah, we need three hours of training. Um, it's the end of April. We're hoping to make our decision by the end of May and we'd like to go live June, July 15th. Mm-hmm. It just, no, no, that's just, that's just not going to happen. It's, there's a lot more complexity, which again is part of what I love about the field is it's, it's, it's different. It's complex. It's changing. It's challenging. Um, and it's fun and exciting. But there's a lot of moving parts, Um, you know, just things like, especially if you're in an organization with a lot of stakeholders and a lot of subject matter experts, if you're doing instructor-led training, you need everybody to agree on those four bullet points on slide seven. Mm -hmm. But then the instructor is going to talk about those four bullet points for five minutes. 
Nobody scripts out those five minutes. <laughs> you don't need your seven SMEs to agree on those five minutes, but in e-learning you do, self-paced e-learning you do. You're scripting out 100% of what is communicated to the student, and you need everybody to agree on 100% of what's going to the student. So there's, there's a lot more um, uh, time and coordination and agreement involved, and I think um, it's easy to go, oh yeah, I know how long it takes to review an hour of content. I've done that before. Well, an hour-long PowerPoint and an hour-long e-learning, very different levels of effort. So I think just knowing what you're in for, if you're working with subject matter experts, preparing them for what they're going to be in for um, and uh, so that they have the, the time available. So that's at the more at the, the higher level, more the project management level. And then more on the tactical level, I think some of the, the common missteps I see is um, people not really taking advantage of the medium. You know, you can do some really robust things, even with the rapid e-learning development tools. And you know, I teach how to use Storyline, and I can teach you how to, to do, use everything in the tool. But what you have to come to the table with is, what do I want to do with it? Yes, I can write a multiple-choice question, but can I write a good multiple-choice question? <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, I understand how to make a drag-and-drop. Why would I make a drag-and-drop? And so what ends up happening is, is we often end up with these... Um, courses made with these tools that's a glorified um, PowerPoint. It's somebody talking over bullet points followed by a multiple choice question that tests on a definition. And there's so much more we can do with it. Mm -hmm. There is so much more we can get to people try things out to practice something. There's so much we can do from a multimedia standpoint rather than looking at uh, a list of bullet points. And so, you know, sometimes you don't have a lot of time. You make your bullets, you add your pretty clip art on the left, your bullet points on the right, you add some narration, you put in a multiple choice quiz and you're done. Okay, I mean, if that's all you have the time for, great. But let's just know that that's a 20% that's a solution in terms of what's possible, even with just the, the rapid e-learning tools. Mm. Well, so I think your you know answer there in terms of the the common mistakes or misunderstandings, you know, at that strategic or project man management level, not understanding sort of what's involved and and therefore the the timeline that that entails, and then more on that tactical level, not really using the tools to their full um, benefit. So, you know, what do you see then as like the, the keys to successful e-learning design and development? You know, again, you've, you've been able to be involved in so many projects over the years. So what really sets the stage for success? One of the best pieces of advice I can give to folks, especially if they're converting instructor-led training, is to just set their existing PowerPoint aside. Mm. <laughs> just set it aside. Because let's be really honest. 80% of the PowerPoint slides out there aren't even good for the classroom. <laughs> like, they're not even good at their current job. Right. And let's just be honest. And in e-learning, you know, in the classroom, most of the time they're looking at you, at the instructor. The slide is just a little side thing. And so a good instructor can carry a bad PowerPoint. In e-learning, that's all you have your visuals and your interactions. Sure, there's a voice, but it's not the same. And so a slide, a slide deck that was barely good at its other job is going to be less good at this job. And so to me, that's one of the keys to success is don't pretend it's the same, is start from scratch, um, is build it from the ground up. Um, the other big key to success, and this is something we always work with new writers on, is to really focus less on the knowledge and more on the action. Mm. 
It's not really unique to e-learning. It's true for any training, um, but e-learning is expensive. So let's get it right. You know, let's not waste people's time. Every minute of that e-learning is costing money for you to develop and for whoever's taking it, their time is worth, every minute is worth it. And so if we're wasting their time, we're wasting our budget dollars with background and context and, oh, here's the philosophy and, oh, you might be curious. Well, if they're curious about something, then go watch the History Channel. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. And so to me, it's help me solve my problems. Um, give me something that will help me deal with something um, on some random Tuesday in November. What challenge am I facing and how can you help me tackle that challenge? And so with e-learning, less background, less context, more, here's what you need to do, and here's the scenario in which you would do it, and then less quizzing on definitions and more on practice. So um, when I teach how to design um, for e-learning, one of my um, key points is stop using the term knowledge check and start using the term practice activity. Mm. Instead of saying, what question can I ask? Ask yourself, how can I get them to practice? And if you just make that one little change in your thinking, you will design a different course. Mm. Well, again, I feel like your your answer here is leading directly into the next question <laughs> that I wanted to ask, which has to do with learner motivation and engagement, because I think those come up time and again in discussions that I know I have with folks in learning businesses. And I think there's the perception that motivation and engagement are harder to achieve in self-paced e-learning. Um, so first, I would love to hear kind of your your thoughts on that perception and then, you know, suggestions for how to foster learner motivation and engagement in that context of e-learning. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I don't know that motivation and engagement are harder to achieve in e-learning. They're different. They're hard to achieve the same way. So we have to tackle them differently. So if you've got a motivation issue, well, first of all, you need to back up strategically and say, um, is training the right way to get that motivation? Um, and I do believe motivation should absolutely be part of training initiatives and you need to decide what percentage is it a case, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm doing training on a new time and attendance system and this new system is how you ask for your time off, guess what? You're going to be motivated. I don't need to spend a lot of time on it, <laughs> but if I'm implementing a new software, that's going to make, uh, pricing decisions for you and your, uh, incentivized by your profit margin, and now this software is going to be taking away some of your control about how to gain that profit, yeah, I'm going to have a motivation issue. And I think I need to step back and say, um, that's change management. You know, we need to be careful that we're not trying to make an e-learning course be all things to all people. But can you tackle motivation in e-learning? Absolutely. A, a super compelling testimonial video. And no, I don't mean a static CEO writing, you know, reading a marketing-approved sterile script in a monotone voice. That's not what I'm talking about, about a compelling video. Nobody wants to watch that video. But a compelling testimonial video about somebody whose life has been changed by something. Um, an activity where they have to self-reflect on an issue that's happened to them. You know, th there are absolutely ways to tackle motivation and engagement. There, there's, there's just so much to choose from there. But if you're limiting yourself to the fact-based multiple choice quizzes, or maybe, ooh, you get a game-based template for your fact-based <laughs> multiple choice questions. That's not engagement. Um, some people think engagement is clicking the next button to move forward. 
or a click to reveal activity where they click on something to reveal more information. That's a great teaching construct. Use it all the time. That's not engagement. That's screen management. Engagement is getting them to think. And there is so much that we can do. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got around engagement, and I, it was at a conference, and I cannot for life me remember who said it. I wish I could give them credit. But it was one of those moments that rocked my world. And they said, you can do so much more for your student if you let go of caring whether they get it right or wrong. Hmm. With e-learning, we've become control freaks, mm. and it limits our ability to engage. So let's say I'm doing a course on uh, an in-person course on management skills for new supervisors. And on page seven, I, we open up to page seven, and there's a line down the middle, and I say, okay, on the left side of the page, I want you to think about the best boss you ever had. What made them the best boss? And now on the right side of the page, think about your worst boss ever. What made them your worst boss? And then in the classroom, I'd say, okay, now everybody stop pass forward your workbooks. I'm going to go run to the copy machine, make a copy of all of these pages and keep them in my files. <laughs> you're, you're not. <laughs> right. But that's often the mindset is I'll do an activity like that. I'll propose it and the stakeholders will go, well, will I know the answer? Nope. Mm. Well, did I know that that guy in the back row in my class wasn't just making his grocery list? I don't. You don't withhold it from the people who would have value because a, a few people might not give it value. Mm. Well, I know what they said. Nope. <laughs> you won't. It was still worth doing. Will some of them skip it? Yep. Mm. But let's put it in there for the folks who would add value. And so if we let go of having to track and report, yes, we can have a quiz at the end that's for us. There are things we do for us. But let's make sure we're doing things for them that I don't track. And yeah, maybe they skipped it. But if it's a question worth asking, ask it. Mm. That's great. I, I like that advice that you got at that conference years ago. Um, that idea of letting go of control and, and that need to, to know whether they've gotten something right or wrong and instead focus on that that practice, that action that's going to get them um, more engaged with, with the content. So we'll switch topics a little bit. I mentioned that you um, led a session at Learning Technology Design 2019, and that was on micro learning. So I'd like to talk about micro learning for a bit. And I think that's another important one, though, where probably before we talk about it, I should ask for your definition of micro learning. Sure. sure. A lot of people define micro learning about length, and, and I don't. To me, micro learning is not about length. Um, micro learning, to me, is a discrete chunk of content that solves a singular need. And so it means I come in as the learner, I have a need, and by the time I walked out, I have a solution to that need. And so it's micro, not because you're dictating the length, but it's because, in your, it's because you're narrowing the focus of what problem you're trying to solve. So, that's so for example... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say that's perfect. I mean, so it's that singular need, and now you have an mm -hmm. example of a singular yes, need. Yes, a singular need. So if I were to say, oh, our meeting, our status meetings are so unproductive, let's do micro-learning on, on how to do more effective meetings. And we design an hour of content, and we slice it into 10-minute chunks. To me, that's called chunking, mm -hmm. not micro-learning. 
-hmm. There is a difference. There's nothing wrong with chunking. If you have an hour's worth of information to provide and you want to slice and dice it to make it easier to consume, have at it. Great strategy. But to me, microlearning is I have a specific need. I can go in and just get that. And if I do nothing else, I have solved a problem in my life. So if it's instead, maybe we have a micro lesson just on, you know, you know, that dynamic in a status meeting where everybody goes around the room and talks about what they're working on and you wonder why you're there (laughs) and then you don't know what you're supposed to be listening for. And then when it gets to you, you're not really sure what to say. Mm -hmm. What if we just had five minutes on how to structure your, how to decide what to give in your update? What if that's, we just solved that one little problem. That's micro learning. Now, if we, if we wanted to make eight of these and string them together in a broader micro curriculum, so to speak, great. But if I only take one chunk, I have solved the problem. So a lot of people will go, oh, well, how long should micro learning be? Well, as long as it needs to be to solve a problem, because if you haven't solved their problem, then it wasn't micro. Mm-hmm. Then, then, then that was, that was, that's not a unique um, singular event. Um, so, so the way I see it is that micro learning is not about making your courses smaller. Micro learning is about making your goal smaller. Hmm. That's, I think, very helpful, that idea focusing on that, that goal or that need that the, um, the learning experience is going to address. And if it's small, and then, then that's the micro versus this. uh, And and I do like that distinction of that's different than chunking, which might be small components, but you kind of need them all together to really have addressed whatever the the need um, is. So, you know, you've been involved in many micro learning um, projects. And again, I'm just curious to kind of know what you tend to see as like, what are the, the strengths of micro learning, sort of the, the strong suits and or, you know, the what people tend to get wrong with micro learning as they you know, attempt to, to implement it. Sure. Um, part of what I love about the micro learning trend is that it gets us back to some key basics that are easy to forget. Even though micro learning is new, so to speak, it's trendy, at least that part's new. Um, it focuses on some unchanging values, values like don't waste my time. Hmm. Help me solve my problem. Give me what I need efficiently. And so I think microlearning has put up a microscope to the bloat that's in a lot of training. Mm. There's a lot of talking we do to talk. And if the microlearning trend or fad, and you know it's been actually been going on for a couple of years, so I don't know if you can call it a trend or fad after it's been in vogue for so many years. Um, If this trend helps us be more discriminating about what we choose to share or not share with our learners, fabulous. Let's keep doing that. Um, If the the focus on microlearning and the rush to do it, even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, even if you're getting into microlearning just because your boss said so and you don't have a strategic reason, if doing it makes you go, how can I be as helpful as I can in as short a period as I can? Fabulous. You know? Let's all jump on that bandwagon. So to me, microlearning strong suits is it can help us be really focused and solve people's problems. I believe that's why we're here as an industry. It is not to talk. It is not about content. We are in the business of solving people's problems. 
And so that is the strong suit of microlearning is you can help solve people's problems very quickly, assuming you have the right business case for it. I mean, you know, if you're going to solve a very specific problem, it means you ha- your learner has to know they have that problem and needs to know where to get that information and has to be able to get it quickly because if it takes too long, if it takes longer to find it in your LMS than it takes you to take <laughs> it, you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. So you have to have the right context for it. But let people go in, figure out what they need, get on with their day. So those, to me, are the strong suits. What I see people getting wrong is um, uh, let the letting the tail wag the dog. Oh, I want to do a series of my five-minute micro-learning videos. Well, if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish, how do you know you need a video, and how do you know five minutes is the right length? Mm. You know, it's solving the problem backwards. Um, and I have a, a template that I can share um, uh, with you to distribute that's a, that can help you walk through how to narrow the focus on a, on a specific problem and make sure that your, your output is good. And the very last decision you make is your format. Mm-hmm. You don't start with your format. So that's one of the issues I see. And then the other thing I see is people cramming so much information in uh, to get, and, you know, they're trying to keep it to five minutes. And so they cram it full of five minutes and they take out what makes good training you know, if, if we're not building benefit, if we're not setting context, if we're not giving a useful example, if we're not giving them a chance to practice, are we making good training? Mm. If we're just throwing facts out and make a PDF and go home. Mm. So we need to be careful that in our desire to make something shorter, we cut out what makes good training. And so if you really want to solve someone's problem, and maybe just walking them through the five steps is all they need, great. But if they need the five steps and an example and a chance to practice, then they need that. Because here's the thing. Five-minute micro-learning that doesn't solve a problem was a waste of five minutes. Mm. <laughs> Excellent point there. That, again, gets back to what you said, that for you, micro-learning not about length. Um, and so really being relentlessly focused on that need, then that problem that you're solving so you've been you know sharing all along and you're drawing on the experiences and examples that you've accumulated over your time working in the field and I know you've seen some changes during that time and now I'm going to you know ask you to pull out your crystal ball and say if you're looking ahead you know what do you think might be on the horizon for e-learning if we look out say you know approximately 5 years or so <laughs> well uh it's an interesting time to be talking about that question, Lisa. You know, um, it's April 28th at 10.38 a.m. 2020. I don't even know what e-learning is going to look like tomorrow. <laughs> With everything going on in the world, I don't even know what it's going to look like. And we don't even know what the world's going to look like in three months. So in some ways, it's it's really hard to know what, what e-learning is going to look like in the coming five years. But even just if you look at the past six weeks, has been just such a fundamental change in the e-learning landscape. Um, my uh, my daughter-in-law it works at a university in an instructional design field, and her, her job for years has been to help professors move their content online. And when all the shutdowns happened, she was deemed an essential employee. Mm and get one of the few people who had access to campus. And, you know, we've even joked in the past internally about, oh, there's no such thing as an instructional design emergency. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, (laughs) an instructional designer is an essential employee. How amazing is that? So I think think there will be ripple effects for years. 
that um, the value of e-learning is going to go up and down because right now um, people are having to do e-learning. And so I think some people see the advantages. But I also think that what's what's being executed right now isn't ideal. People are getting things done, and that's awesome. And I, I know so many people who are just busting themselves to get stuff online because they need to get something out because people need training now. And it's not perfect, and it's not fabulous, but by golly, they are getting it done. It's happening in the corporate world, the nonprofit world, um, higher ed, K through 12, is we are in a get-it-done mode right now. So unfortunately, that means that that's going to be some people's first foray into e-learning, and it might cause some lasting impressions of this is what e-learning is. And it may or may not be a great experience for them. So I think we'll have a ripple effect from that. But at the same time, I think we'll have a ripple effect of, hey, this was good. We were able to get things done um, and we didn't have to, um, you know, all get together in a classroom. And it could be years before we can get together um, in, in at least maybe in a conference environment. It's hard to say, you know, probably small training. I think I think it would be great if by the end of the year we could do that. But the other trend I think is going to come out of this is that we might let go of some of the the need for production value. Now, I still think we need good instructional design because if you're not saying the right things, it doesn't matter what it looks like. But if you look at everything from, you know, philharmonic orchestras doing recordings from their living rooms to Saturday Night Live with people just using their whatever cameras they have. Are gonna, they're going to make people go, hey, do we need to be spending all that money on a studio? Can we do things simpler and still get them across? And so, um, you know, I think there's going to be some backlash where people experience some bad e-learning and they might go, oh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's, there's nothing here that's good. This was all bad and painful. But I think there's going to be a lot of this is good and I think we can leverage this. Mm. And then I think there's going to be a reevaluation of what really matters. Uh, there are some organizations who spend most of their e-learning budget on making things look flashy. Mm. And let's allocate those dollar, dollars to making things helpful. Mm. Well, I, as you noted, it is a very difficult time to be um, looking out to the future. But I think that what you laid out there in terms of it seems like what's happening in the current moment probably will have lasting uh, ripple effects on what's to come in the years ahead and that some of it's likely to be positive and some of it may be negative. Um, and we'll see five years from now. <laughs> and so um, we'll begin to wrap up. And the last question, excuse me, the next to last question I want to ask you is one that we ask of all the guests on the podcast, and it focuses on your personal learning specifically. And the question is, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? It's a great question. Uh, I already mentioned that one aha moment in a conference. Um, I, I do go to a lot of conferences. Um, that's where I get most of my professional education. Um, I would say one of the other learning experiences that I've had that has really been impactful for me has been um, Kathy Moore's action mapping. Mm. So she has a, a process. Uh, it's, it's supremely elegant, is simple, and very difficult to execute because of how simple it is. <laughs> you know, simple is actually very, very challenging to do well, whether it's graphic design or anything in life. Simple is hard. 
it's a great, great process that helps you get out of your own head and your content. And here's what I need people to know and lets you flip the conversation to the learner and what you need them to do. And it is such a great tool for filtering out the unnecessary fluff, making sure that our learners know what they're supposed to do with what we're telling them. And it's a great tool for negotiating with SMEs when they say, oh yeah, they absolutely need to know all of this. I'm not sure they do. Oh, they need to know this. I really don't think they need this. Well, they need to be aware of it. (laughs) You know, it helps with that moment and gets everybody on the same page where we're all in service to the learner. And it also helps map out um, the concept of practice activities. So I would say that learning about her model and I got almost everything just from her website. Um, you know, she's got just a ton of great resources. Uh, Kathy Moore, Action Mapping. And it has changed who I am as an instructional designer. Mm-hmm. And then if I can share one more experience um, that was more of the informal, um, I do a lot around um, accessibility in e-learning. So for individuals with disabilities, if someone can't um, see, how do they go through your e-learning course? If they can't use a mouse, they can't do your drag and drop because I can answer a multiple choice with my keyboard, but I can't do a drag and drop with my keyboard. Um, and I've, I've read a lot. I go to anytime I'm at a conference, if there's a session on it, I go, but to me, the most telling, the most impactful thing I ever learned about accessibility was sitting down next to someone who is visually impaired, who uses a screen reader in her own life. And I watched her take my course with her screen reader. And it was just so impactful because I could read about it in books all day long. But to sit there and watch how she navigated and how she processed information and what was easy for her and what was hard for her was one of the best pieces of education I ever got. Mm. So a real emphasis on the experiential learning there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for all that you've shared, Diane. The last question I want to ask you is just if listeners want to learn more about your work or connect with you, where would you point them? Okay. Uh, Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm there. And then uh, you can also follow um, our blog, elearninguncovered.com. Uh, we've got a blog there with um, anything from storyline tips and tricks to um, how to negotiate with a subject matter expert. It's really all over the place about e-learning, whatever, whatever we've been dealing with that particular week, we will often share some insights. So um, you can follow us there. Well, great. We'll make sure to get links to those in the show notes. Diane, thanks so much for taking time to share today. You bet. Thanks for having me. That concludes the interview with Diane Elkins. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 244. And the show notes will include the reflection questions, which are, one, are there places in the products and services your learning business offers where letting go of control will result in more effective design? And evaluate your production values. Do you need to rethink them to focus on what's truly helpful for learners versus what's flashy? When you check out the show notes, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be really grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple and that'll put you in the right place. And Salise and I personally appreciate your ratings and reviews, but more importantly, those ratings and reviews help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. 
please consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook by going to leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn by going to leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on each of those channels. However you do it, please do help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.